today's going to be beautiful. Today is going to be happy. And today you're going to be present. Welcome to the Power Hour, the weekly podcast that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert, international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas global ambassador and entrepreneur. Each week, I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just one hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon, or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration, the Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. My guest today is a medical doctor who specializes in general practice, and he is a firm believer in the power of food as medicine. He is a cookery author on a mission to inspire us all to discover new foods, new recipes, and to teach us about the medicinal effects of eating well. He is currently creating the UK's first culinary medicine course accredited by the Royal College of General Practice. This course aims to teach doctors and health professionals the foundations of nutrition and how to cook. He has hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram and YouTube, where he shares his recipes and cookery demos. Welcome to the show, Rupi Orgula, aka The Doctor's Kitchen. (laughs) Welcome to the show. It's such a nice introduction. Oh, I'm so happy. It's very sweet. I'm kind of like beaming whenever, yeah, it's very nice. You've been busy. I have been busy, yeah, as have you. Um, yeah, and it's great to finally connect as yeah, well. Over, I know, so many like, mutual friends. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Over the summer, it was it was great actually just having that. I remember it was for Zana's birthday and we were just like walking for hours and just chatting for hours yeah. and having had stalked you for like a year prior to that, <laughs> it was nice to actually like have a one-to-one conversation. So, yeah. yeah, and I'm glad we can do this. Yeah, me too. So thank you for coming in. Oh, it's a privilege. I'm mega happy to have you here on the show. It's so fantastic to see how you combine the two worlds of medicine and food personally i am fascinated by the effect that diet and food can have on our health and i absolutely love cooking so the combination is absolutely perfect for me so thanks for coming in today but before we dive into it for anybody listening who doesn't know much about you who you are what you do now can you take us back and talk me through how and why you first got started okay so you've done an introduction to me people know i'm an nhs gp i work at uh, Uh, mainly in emergency medicine these days actually because I did quite a bit of emergency medicine when I was living in Sydney a couple of years ago I'm now based in the UK but I suppose everything started for me uh, when I was about 11 or 12 my mum got ill Uh, she used to suffer from uh, anaphylaxis attacks and that's basically where you have the most severe form of allergy and your blood pressure drops and you go into hives, skin rashes, your throat closes and she um, went through a whole bunch of different medical specialists, immunologists, um, medical practitioners and uh, she was essentially confined to having to use medications every single day. So antihistamines, having an EpiPen which is an adrenaline shot Uh, and I watched her from a very young age come off all medications by looking 
at her lifestyle and simplifying everything. She employed sleep hygiene habits, mindfulness techniques, as well as going on uh, quite a, a strict diet mm-hmm. that actually removed things initially, but then reintroduced them later on. And she's not a medic. She's uh, she's trained as a lawyer. She's done a whole bunch of other things. So she's took she took an analytical approach to what she did. Plus, as I'm from an Indian background, obviously mm-hmm. there was a sprinkle of Ayurveda in there as okay. well. So that's kind of like the influence that I I came up uh, and was brought up with and that experience actually over over those years watching my mum get better um, inspired me to become a doctor and no one else in my family from either side is medical and that's quite a shock for a lot of people they always assume that you know I come from an Indian background I've got both Indian parents no one in my family is from medicine in fact my family tried to convince me not to go into medicine they're both in business and they understand just how busy uh, uh, the lifestyle of a doctor is but regardless I went into medicine mm. and I uh, I was absolutely fascinated by everything you know the human body uh, how we can make people uh, healthier and happier I learned uh, so much during those six years not only about medicine but also about myself I grew and as a person and I qualified when I was 24 but I forgot what inspired me to go in, into medicine in the first place mm. and I only remembered really when I got ill myself. So when I was a junior doctor in 2009, I was working in Basildon Hospital and it was super stressful, poor diet, poor lifestyle, poor sleep habits, stress, everything you can imagine. Mm, Which is ironic, but I think a lot of doctors that I know, I have a few doctor friends, they say that that your first years out of medical school, either in A&E, working in hospitals, is probably the most unhealthy life you could imagine as you said like you know not having time to cook meals people you know having very very little sleep and it's kind of ironic that you're there to help people to get better and to I guess essentially even maybe operating on people you know minor operations and you might have not had much sleep and you're you know living on caffeine it seems so ironic but I guess that unfortunately people who work within the NHS and you know doctors nurses all the people they work so so hard mm. and yeah I guess that's just how, how it was at the time. yeah it's I mean you're just thrown in the deep end and it's something that happens every single year and every junior doctor or doctor listening to this will, will understand exactly what I'm talking about but for me personally it had a really detrimental effect on my health Uh, I started suffering from something called atrial fibrillation, which is where your heart beats exceptionally fast. And in my case, very, very irregularly as well. The first time I actually experienced atrial fibrillation, which was was when I was actually working on a shift. And I I, I just went into an episode, I was going at 200 beats per minute. I spoke to my registrar and I was like, you need to feel my pulse. I think I'm going quite fast. And I was admitted uh, to the ward that day uh, when I was working next to patients that I was treating earlier that that day actually no and, it, and it's like it's funny for me now but actually that experience uh kind of heightened uh what actually gave me um the experience of what it's like to be a patient mm. and literally being wheeled around the hospital uh, and it's super embarrassing i never understood mm. really what it's like to be a patient prior mm. to that uh, you know you can empathize and we're mm. taught you know great communication skills at, at, at university but it's still until you've experienced it you don't really understand what, it, what it's like um and so i would go i thought it was going to be a one-off episode you know maybe i had too much caffeine maybe i hadn't drunk enough water there are lots of different reasons there wasn't a, a cl- clear trigger found but i would have these episodes two to three times a week for the next year as well and I went through almost like a similar sort of journey to my mum 
15 years prior um, where I went to see a whole bunch of different cardiologists, a whole bunch of different doctors, had all the different tests you can imagine, um, electrophysiology studies, cardiac MRIs, everything. And no cause was found and I was going to have something called an ablation, which is where you put a guide wire into the heart and you essentially burn an area of the heart that is uh, found to be responsible for atrial fibrillation in a lot of cases. It was sold to me as like a potentially curative procedure, relatively safe. I was a very good candidate. I didn't have any other medical issues. So I was definitely going to go for that. And it was my mum who actually asked me and and convinced me to look at my lifestyle in the first instance try and optimize your internal environment as best as you can prior to going into something that's a lot more uh, uh, a lot more yeah exactly and a lot, a lot more um uh extreme so begrudgingly actually mm. i i decided to look at my lifestyle I decided to look at a little bit of research and try and optimize everything i had in my locus of control started with food so i stopped eating things like cereals refined carbohydrates and relying on the hostel canteen sandwiches and i started doing a lot more cooking from scratch um and actually taking those into work darkening leafy vegetables eating more plants having a lot more colors uh i was probably doing a whole bunch of things just by trying to live the healthiest lifestyle that was improving my internal environment i focused on sleep i focused on uh my mental uh, health i i was taught how to meditate when i was a teenager and so i started employing those sorts of tactics again uh, to try and mitigate against you know other issues that were going on during the hospital environment and stuff and about a year and a half later, and I, I remember this vividly because I tracked my atrial fibrillation really, really religiously. I had mm. this thing on my phone, and every time I'd go into an episode, I'd, I'd record the amount of time, uh, what things I was doing prior to see if there was any triggers. And I remember looking back at this log and thinking, oh, it's been two weeks since I've had an episode, which is very unusual considering I was going into it about two to three times mm. a week, upwards of 24 hours each episode. And then that turned into four weeks, and then that turned to two months. And I remember going to my cardiologist and saying, look, something weird's going on. I don't know what's what I've done, mm. but I'm not having as frequent episodes. And they kind of brushed it off, uh, understandably, as something that happens. You know, you, you kind of go into a period of what they call quinescence, where you have a period where it just goes away, but it'll probably come back. And so I was warned that it will probably come back. But mm. since then, it just hasn't. Brilliant. And I, I have my regular tests. I go to see what my heart function is doing. I, I have the ECGs. I, I do all that kind of stuff. But it hasn't come back. And that experience really reaffirmed for me the idea that lifestyle and food is incredibly impactful. Mm. And I've pretty much dedicated a lot of my time, in fact, the majority of my time now, today, to trying to bring an evidence-based uh, opinion and an evidence-based perspective on why food can be medicinal and lifestyle is so impactful to our health. Wow, wow, it's super interesting to hear you share that story and there's so many things to be honest, that resonate with me personally. I know that you know my husband um, suffered a brain hemorrhage and he has epilepsy. And I think, as you said, when you're a patient in a hospital and you have to, you know, if you're a young, healthy guy or girl and you've never experienced that before, I think often my perspective on hospitals was that it was, you know, like old people that are ill or, you know, people with these chronic conditions and you don't think that you're going to be one of them. So I think, yeah, I really resonated with that. From That's a really good point because, you know, it was so frustrating being a 24-year-old having this heart condition. I remember I'd like, it'd be the silly things like I'd be going to go play a game of tennis and then like halfway through the game, I'd just have to retire because mm. I'd flip into AF and I couldn't understand why. Yeah. Uh, or even actually, I remember going on a bike ride and then I had to stop. Yeah. Because, and I remember thinking, 
I'm so fit and able. Yeah. I wasn't overweight. I was generally in good health according to everyone around me. Mm-hmm. And yet that happened. And that frustration was just, it, it doesn't lead me to this day. And I understand everyone who comes to see me in clinic or in a I kind of, I always bring myself back to that position and try and empathize with them mm-hmm. because um, it, it's very hard to, to comprehend if you haven't experienced it. Yeah, and I think that empathy must be so appreciated by your patients because as you said, again, thinking about Rob, he's been in those situations before, very frustrated when you want to you wanna live your life. You don't want to have limiting you know, things in your life, especially to do with your health when you're young. So I think that must be, you know, that experience for you must have, yeah, given you so such a different kind of perspective and also, um, I guess just a respect for your own health as well as, as you said, um, being able to empathize with your patients. Absolutely. So it's fantastic. And I guess now you, so so that encouraged you to look at your diet and your your things that you could control and your environment. But obviously now we know you're an author, um, you do all these incredible recipes. His Instagram pictures, guys, <laughs> the food is so delicious and amazing. So have you always been able to cook? Who taught you to cook? Did you kind of just experiment after yourself or how yeah, did you? It all comes back down to my mom. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, so before I went to medical school uh, and I went to Imperial Medical School, my mom, who's a fantastic cook and she's always cooked from scratch pretty much most of most of our childhood um particularly for considering her, her health condition she would definitely cook things from scratch and stuff so she sat me down um that summer before i was about to go and she was like look you need to learn how to cook you need to learn how to like you know cook things from scratch because you're going to be on your own now so she taught me uh three dishes one of which is in my first book the doctor's kitchen called uh lemongrass thai curry and it's just it was such an elegant, beautiful, simple curry mm. um, that she made look so simple. But I remember thinking, wow, this is going to be complicated. There's so many different ingredients. But the way she taught me and the method she taught me was just super easy. And I remember going to medical school that week and cooking that meal. And everyone just thought I was this incredible You're chef. so impressed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were just like, oh, my God, this guy can like do this like amazing meal or whatever. But really, my repertoire of recipes was limited to three. Okay. So to keep up the pretense of like me being the chef, <laughs> the chef. I had to learn new recipes. And, and that kind of got me like the little bug. I just wanted to learn so much more. And I knew that, you know, it was super good for me. And I, I knew that uh, using different uh, ingredients could make people happy. And I loved doing that. I loved entertaining. Mm. And so it was really throughout medical school that I increased my repertoire of recipes and I essentially applied that knowledge of how to use flavor and going through different cuisines and making it culturally relevant to health food when I got ill myself and that's Mm. essentially what I've done with the doctor's kitchen since then amazing guys I encourage you to check out these recipes (laughs) honestly you're going to be it's going to make you hungry so as I mentioned at the start of the show this concept of food as medicine has been around since the beginning of time but somewhere along the way the modern world seems to have Um, become disconnected from this way of thinking so we've developed so many different types of medications painkillers steroids vaccinations antibiotics and many of these i'm sure are essential but we've moved towards a much more clinical way um, of looking at medicine however are we now pivoting again and returning to the idea that food plants and nature really do hold the keys to good health why do you think that we're now going back to looking at food as medicine? It's a really interesting question. And I think it's a topic that comes up a lot amongst my medical colleagues, particularly those who are interested in lifestyle medicine. 
And I believe that around 50 or 60 years ago, there was a renaissance within medicine. You know, we started using antibiotics. We saw the incredible impact of antimicrobials and how we rid ourselves of infections that would otherwise be a death sentence mm. in a lot of people. Sanitation obviously has a role. Vaccination has a role. Um, a whole bunch of other things. But medicine was really held as this huge futuristic technology that would enable us to live the healthiest life and that's where i think there was a general sort of consensus that what the doctor does and what healthcare provides us with in modern healthcare can be absolutely phenomenal and i think uh the balance of that and just how much um trust and uh effort we put into to healthcare that the balance of that has shifted now that we're witnessing a rise of different sorts of diseases so chronic lifestyle related diseases those like high blood pressure cardiovascular disease uh, fueled by an industry that is unfortunately related to big food manufacturers is now overpowering what healthcare can provide mm. and the the solutions that we've traditionally held in the form of a pill and the form of quick fixes almost don't apply to this new generation of chronic illness and unfortunately because of our obesogenic environment and something that i coined called the psychogenic environment which is an environment that predisposes us to a lot of psychological issues Unfortunately, it's just something that requires much more of a holistic and balanced perspective than just asking for a pill. I think also we, and I like to use this term homeostasis quite a bit, it's basically the, the process by which organisms maintain equilibrium. And I think it's never black or white. There's always like a combination of two things. I use pharmaceuticals, not personally every day, but obviously with, with patients, but I also give them the added benefit of lifestyle advice. And there is so much that we can use each other as complements mm. rather than one or the other. And I think, you know, we like to make things black and white, but actually it's really about balance. It's really about this homeostatic sort of uh, concept. Yeah, I think that's really important actually that you mentioned that because what I would never want for people to think is that, as you said, it's not they're not mutually exclusive it's not one without the other they both can benefit each other because of course there are conditions that require for you to take a daily medication for some people maybe more than one and it's not to say that I know that I think there's quite you know extremes within media and within documentaries that will say you know look at this person they were taking these tablets then they changed their diet they threw their tablets in the bin yeah. and I think that can also be very irresponsible because yeah if you need a medication um, you know daily mm. I'm sure changing your diet can have a huge impact but it might not necessarily mean that you're going to be able to just you know rid yourself of your prescription you know it might be kind of dangerous for you to do that right exactly yeah and that's why I think initially when I came up with the doctor's kitchen I was quite worried that people would just think it's a doctor and he's throwing away medications in, mm. in the way of like it, what in, in uh, by replacing them with fruits and vegetables which and, and I can understand that. It sounds almost paradoxical, the doctor's kitchen. He's a doctor, isn't he meant to be peddling drugs? And he's doing stuff in the kitchen. That doesn't sound like it should be together. But it is. Mm. And we love paradoxes. And I think the doctor's kitchen is really a great metaphor, just those three words, for what I do and what I believe. Because I think a lot of people can be helped by both systems, mm. by both conventional and uh, traditional medicine, for want of a better word. Um, and I think overall... In the future, maybe in the next five, ten years even, if I am successful with culinary medicine and all the other stuff that I'm, I'm doing, that it will just be labelled medicine. Yeah. It's just good medicine. <laughs> yeah. And it's really interesting as well, going back to what you said about 50, 60 years ago with the, with the medicine and the industry, because... 
you know, I feel like with the older generations in my family, they definitely have this kind of conditioning and this respect for doctors and they trust the information that they are told without questioning it. They, they trust it blindly because if a doctor tells you something that it's correct, 100%, the GP said, you know, and that comes down to everything from take this tablet to, you know, vaccinations to flu jabs to anything. If it's NHS and the GP says it, they take it as gospel. But I think the younger generation and people that I see are kind of taking more responsibility perhaps for their own health and they might be doing more research into alternative treatments and into looking at their lifestyle, looking at their diet. They might be more reluctant to take antibiotics or to get vaccinations. And I don't know what you think about this. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? You know, are we all getting a bit carried away with relying too much on the internet and, you know, Googling things and getting our own medical advice and perhaps just looking at our favorite bloggers recommendation, (laughs) you know, when and really, you know, as you said, do we need that balance somewhere? It's a really good question. I think what we're witnessing is the democratization of information via the internet. And the internet is a very powerful thing. And I think while some people would heed warning in totality and that, you know, you shouldn't listen to anything you you come across on the internet without putting past your doctor first i think yes that there are some sensible things actually you can glean from the internet i using myself as an example have learned a ton of things by using an analytical critical approach from the internet however i'm very aware that people who don't have such skills can be lured towards things that can be unsafe for Mm. a lot of people Mm. So again, it comes down to balance of where we get the information from and knowing who to trust and where and, and, and how to get this information. What, the other thing I think is really important to note is the concept of science, really, and the skepticism and the challenges are things that we need to embrace as scientists. You know, when I'm challenged by someone who doesn't believe what I'm suggesting or pre- prescribing, it it doesn't infuriate me. It makes me a lot more open-minded. And I think that's a perspective that a lot of doctors need to take. And traditionally, you were saying, you know, the older generations just believe anything that doctors said. Well, you know, whilst I appreciate that's that's great because back then they didn't know anywhere else to get the information. Now it pushes us as doctors to look else outside mm. beyond the sources that are just um, given to us at medical school even as doctors I think we need to embrace challenges from our patients mm. because it does make us more open-minded and it's not just a case of believing everything that we're spoon-fed from medical school in fact on the first day of medical school I remember uh, being told that 50% of what we were going to be taught over the next five six years is going to be incorrect by the end of it it changes constantly it changes constantly and the prevailing scientific bias can change it doesn't change often doesn't change by much but it does change what we believed uh 20 years ago about fat for example and demonizing all types of fats completely changed Mm. and the same way you know the medications that we used to prescribe uh for years and years now completely revolutionized and the way i think we're going to be treating patients in the future is definitely going to uh, involve a lot more holistic medicine or lifestyle medicine or call it whatever you want it's going to be including a lot of lifestyle practices and food as medicine because we are embracing the challenges that we're seeing you know i think one of the reasons uh, that a lot more people are joining um, the conversation is because the patients are demanding more than a quick pharmaceutical fix and that may be born out of some unsavory articles that they've read about on the 
internet and mm. not everyone has the best intentions you know there's a huge supplement industry out there that's capitalizing on people's fears of being micronutrient deficient or that they're at risk for environmental pollutants but at the same time it, we have to be uh, a lot more sort of aware of the different sorts of things that are going on in our environment. And I think we're not taught that medical school and it's a constant learning process. So by virtue of being a scientist, we have to embrace skepticism. Yeah, I love that. I'm, that. I think that's really, really powerful. I hope that people are really hearing what you're saying and listening to that. And I think that that's important, as you said, for people who are at medical school or who are doctors, because I think maybe it's more of an old school thing, as I was saying, with the generation, but also with the doctors as well. You know, if you do go to your GP and, you know, they, I guess they don't know you, they don't know your history, they might not know your lifestyle habits. Obviously they have a limited amount of time, you know, working in the NHS, as I said, I have friends who work in the NHS, have so much respect for you all because it's incredibly, you know, demanding, it's such long hours, it's so hard for them, especially in a general practice, for somebody to walk in, you have 10 minutes, you've got, a, you know, a baby with a rash, then you've got an old lady with a sore knee, then you've got a man with a cough, and it's like, they don't have that much time, and I think actually, if we can take responsibility and even go in with more information, that's like, this is the you know like you said about keeping a journal or keeping a journal of your symptoms or mm. a journal of you know when you felt that or what your what foods you're eating or whatever might actually help the doctor yeah. to help you yeah you know? exactly and i think it's it's a really good point you raised there because i don't think a lot of people recognize just how many people we see per day so when i'm doing a full day of clinic you know i'll be seeing upwards of 40 patients a day which is unprecedented uh, in, in all sort of specialties actually gpc the most because we are frontline clinicians and you're right it can be the old person with a cough or the baby with a rash and when we're looking at that patient the first thing I'm thinking of is the red flag. Has this is this cough lung cancer, mm. or is that rash meningitis, or have I just let a chest pain go? That could be cardiac, you know. And, and uh, there's so many other things, and this is why I run late all, all the time because <laughs> on top of that, <laughs> on top of just like making sure it's nothing serious, I need to factor in the lifestyle stuff. How am I going to promote health as well as prevent disease? And I think those are things that you know a lot of people struggle with to to kind of understand the concept and the demands that we're under as clinicians. So yeah. yes, creating a culture that embraces the um, medicinal effects of eating well will certainly lessen the burden on the NHS and healthcare systems globally, which is why I'm so passionate about this because what I believe and, and the thing that I believe that a lot of people do not believe is the key to health and the key to reversing this huge, huge um, overburden system is food. It all comes down to food. I really agree with you. So talk to us about culinary medicine. So culinary, culinary medicine is your course. Um, and do you think that this could become a part of future education for medics? Yeah, so I'm really pleased to say that it kind of already has. Wow. Um, in a very small way, we've kind of like, we've we've lit the first candle, but we have a long way to go. Like we have a bonfire to create here. <laughs> so uh, culinary medicine, like you, like you put it, is where we teach medical students and doctors uh, clinical nutrition as well as the practical skills of how to cook and this is a concept that's actually come out of america of all places about seven years ago there was a medical school called tulane and they started uh, a culinary medicine course where they taught their medical students as an optional elective alongside dietetic students in a culinary school kitchen fit for purpose because uh, they had a benefactor who gave them like i think it was like quarter of a million pound uh, quarter of a million dollars and that course became so popular that it's now part of compulsory medical education there and 40 other medical schools in the US, which in context is around a quarter of all medical schools in the US. Wow. 
in the UK, we are really far behind. behind yeah. But in summer of this year in Bristol, we ran the first culinary medicine course. It was four weeks of intense training where two days a week, we got them in the kitchen. We got 10 students in the kitchen cooking recipes from scratch. We had a dietitian there who's registered with BDA. We had a, a culinary chef in the community kitchen teaching the recipes as well as the skepticism around the subject, how we fit this information in the context of a small, uh, like time-limited consultation in a hospital, in a community, or even in GP clinics, as well as uh, putting them into health clinics and actually uh, getting them to speak to patients directly and asking them about what prevents them from getting fruits and veggies on their plates. Is it cost? Is it time? Is it lack of education? Is it all these different things? And these guys, honestly, are the first cohort of the new generation of doctors or future doctors that are going to be confident to talk about clinical nutrition, to talk about food and medicine with their patients. And it's about expanding and scaling that across all 32 medical schools in the UK, as well as providing that information and that educational experience to the current qualified doctors who are interested in lifestyle medicine, but also those who are skeptical as well. Yeah, that's really powerful. This Congratulations, because, you know, it sounds absolutely amazing. And I think that the two together, you know, being delivered that information from a qualified doctor, from your GP, I do think carries so much more weight because personally I think within my own life you know relationships within my own family I know there's people who I you know I want to see them change their lifestyle habits I want them to improve their lifestyle habits but I think often when it comes from me they think oh Adrienne you know you're you run marathons and you don't eat this and they think that I'm like extreme you know yeah. and I'm trying to kind of I think coming from me it's not you know they need to hear it from somebody else that it's not an extreme you don't have to run a marathon you don't have to be plant-based you don't have to you know completely give up I don't know caffeine or alcohol or whatever but I do think that as you said just kind of having a skeptical mind that completely eliminates your diet and your lifestyle so if you have a headache oh it's nothing to do with that or if you have I don't know um constant you know stomach issues and digestive issues it's like oh well I just have IBS or I just have this heartburn all the time and just accepting that well I can just take a Remy or whatever it's called or you know like you said the pill mm. instead of going well actually what's causing that and can I change it myself through diet I think this is just super super powerful and I really hope people can take some of this um not from not just from today from this episode but you know m moving forward in the future in their own lives yeah, yeah. and it's interesting the the things that you just noted there ibs um uh gastritis uh high blood pressure you know all these things are in the guidelines so the nice institute the national institute of clinical excellence guidelines uh we we are always taught to consider diet and lifestyle in all those conditions however if you're not taught in medical school if you're not taught at postgraduate level the first thing that we're going to jump to really is going to be a pharmaceutical option and you put your, your clinicians in a time-restricted environment, of course you're going to reach for the, the pharmaceutical option. Of course you're going to reach for this pre prescription pad. So really, it's about making doctors more nutrition literate without having to use the nutritional science speak. Because I don't speak to my patients about carbohydrate ratios or specific phytochemicals. I speak to them about food. Because yep. people can relate to food. If I say, you know, get some more beets and peas and asparagus in your diet, they're in season at the moment, they're going to they're gonna understand that. They're going to go to whatever the supermarket is and they're going to use a recipe. Whereas if I say, oh, you know what, you need to uh, reduce your carbohydrate ratio, make sure you're having not as many saturated fats and remove all trans fats from your diet, 
they're going, they're not going to know what I'm talking about, especially yeah. when we talk about calorie counting as well. And that's yeah. what, and this this myopic focus on things like calories and energy balance, you know, it, it, it's it's frustrating for a lot of people because it doesn't actually give them actionable tips it doesn't give them actionable advice about how they can improve their diet using their plates yeah. and this is something that we we speak about in the course at the moment so my 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 sort of aspiration is to create culinary medicine as the standard in all medical education so we can talk confidently about nutrition but also how we can actually extrapolate that to them teaching their patients about how they can use food and medicine so your older generation can actually go to the gp and they will believe yeah exactly <laughs> and they'll be going adrian actually yeah i, I won't I never say i told you so I would never <laughs> ever say it but i would think it because i'll be like come on like you know and i think it's frustrating especially you know for anyone when it's people that you love nobody wants to see anybody you know unwell or kind of taking um medications or things that you think that possibly they don't need or you know it's kind of dangerous as well when you think about the year after year after year after year of, of eating a certain way and how good they could feel you know mm. so yeah this is amazing i'm super happy <laughs> okay so also on the topic of um you know food and habits and stuff something that a lot of people eat every single day and the big debate that i would like you rupee the doctor to settle for us today is that for years we have been sold this you know breakfast thing the breakfast is the most important meal of the day is this a myth which has been created by cereal and dairy industries i wonder um i know that ayurvedic medicine talks to us about midday and lunchtime actually being the most important meal of the day but recently i've been reading a lot of headlines about fasting about the benefits of fasting and i even read an article yesterday about the one meal a day diet and it's being this article was talking about again about chronic conditions you know people who suffer from the different conditions and talking to them about reducing inflammation and reducing this and reducing that through fasting so what are your thoughts on breakfast <laughs> there's a lot of information he's coming there wow there. okay yeah. we've got to dedicate a whole podcast to this. <laughs> so again it really depends on the patient in front of me so it's an impossible question to answer about whether breakfast is healthy for everybody. It really depends on convenience, the environment, uh, when they're going to work, what their hours are, all that kind of stuff. So for me, for example, just as an anecdote, sometimes I don't have time to make breakfast and I will fast in inverted, in uh, uh, um, what do we call these? Yeah, Speech like marks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm doing these little funny years. <laughs> so, uh, I will fast uh, for a couple of hours and I will break my fast for lunch. Yeah. And I might only have two meals that day. But for some people, that it just wouldn't fly for them because they would get so hungry in that period between 7 a.m. and 12 p.m. that they would therefore snack mm. on things like they, that, that, that they have on their ward or in their, in their office environment. Uh, and, you know, the culprits, the biscuits, the 11Zs, these sorts yeah. of things. And so for them, having a high-fiber, quality-fat, protein-rich breakfast which you might describe as nut seeds or uh, some porridge or some cinnamon in the oats, that kind of stuff with some berries. Would but for be... a lot of people, to be honest, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, for a lot of people, I don't think that's necessarily what their breakfast is. Exactly. A lot of people, it might be cereal. It might be cereal with milk. It might be, you know, these granolas, which I think people, uh, they're sold to us as being a healthy breakfast, mm. when actually those granolas have the same amount of sugar as literally hobnobs, yeah. you know? Yeah. So if you were, so I think that may be the differentiation, okay? So if you have time to prepare 
a breakfast that's fresh and that's good right but if you're just having maybe what cereal or pastry from starbucks not so good yeah like the the pastry phenomena the almond croissant on the way to work the cereals that are super quick and easy that unfortunately in excess this is something that you do every single day is super high in sugar so you know uh the skim milk uh the rice krispies and maybe like half glass of orange juice when you break it down in terms of the sugar content of that, you, you know, you're looking at the added sugar quantity for your entire 24 hours as recommended by the WHO. Wow. And so for lots of people for, who who come to me and that's their diet, you know, I can, I won't, obviously, we're sold as a healthy diet, particularly these granolas. To I'll, children as well. Yeah, you, to the, children The breakfast well. you described of Rice Krispies with milk and orange juice yep. is sold to parents as a nutritious and fantastic breakfast for your children it's to normal. start the day. Yeah, it's normal. And, and again, people think I'm extreme when I think that a bowl of Rice Krispies is a terrible breakfast for a child. It's not about judgment or, you know, kind of condemning parents to saying, oh, because they're told this is good. This is Mm. good for your kids to go to school with that breakfast. Absolutely. And, you know, for for someone who's got experience seeing patients day in, day out with that as a normal breakfast, you know, again, like you said, it's not about judgment. It's not about blaming anyone because that's exactly how we've been taught. But it might be making, and this is something we talk about culinary medicine, it might be making those small movements toward a healthier breakfast so instead of using cereal maybe use oats or maybe it's as quick as doing it whole grain bread with peanut butter on top and a slice of strawberries or or banana or something like that for a kid that's incredible actually because you're getting quality fats you're getting fiber in in the whole grain bread and you're getting a source of uh, of fruit and, and, and vegetables as well so you it, it's it's simple as that actually and then moving that onwards beyond that maybe instead of using the bread you're using nuts and seeds or maybe uh from that you're using a different sort of berry or maybe you're making a smoothie and those sorts of things so it's actually about normalizing and actually uh allowing people and actually equipping people with the ability to do that on a budget and on a time budget as well mm. um so for certain people breakfast works other people they actually thrive on having no breakfast in the morning and limiting their uh, their eating hours to one that is less than 10 or 8 hours i'm very open minded i i appreciate that there are some therapeutic effects of fasting quote unquote but fasting and intermittent fasting itself is such a broad subject mm. it can mean anywhere between an 18 hour fast to something that's like a 72 hour or five day fast so what do we mean by fasting and what does the evidence say as well yeah at this point in time there isn't enough evidence to suggest that a fast once a month that is 24 hours or uh, regular fasting 5-2 is beneficial for the majority of people. However, there is enough evidence for me to suggest that 10 to 12 hours of eating, as in like that's your eating window, and you try not to eat outside of this, not as a rule, not as a restriction, but as a general guide, is going to be helpful for a lot of people. And there are studies to show that if you just do that, you don't do anything to the energy balance, calorie count, the quality of the foods or anything like that, you can actually create things like weight loss. You can actually reduce markers of inflammation. Uh, you can improve your, your gut uh, digestibility. You, you can actually improve your sleep as well. Mm. So for that simple suggestion of just making sure you eat in a rough 12-hour window, you start at 7 a.m., that's your first meal, then you try not to eat after 7 p.m., that's actually 
something that's very actionable for a lot of people mm. and might have some health benefits. Um, but to answer your question about <laughs> breakfast specifically, uh, you know, I personally try and have breakfast. I personally think a lot of people that I see would benefit from having breakfast because otherwise you're putting yourself under unnecessary restriction. And if you're not motivated and you don't really see the benefits, you're going to snack. You're going to reach for the, the candy bars and the Snickers and everything else. You, you're, you're going to be making yourself a lot more stressful about having to restrict yourself and that's never a good thing when it comes to food yeah i said i said at the beginning i'm fascinated <laughs> by this stuff so i could definitely talk to you about it all day i'm gonna bring us back to the power hour as this is the power hour podcast so rupee you're not working shifts right now right no i've got i'm working friday okay so when you're not shift working what time do you get up and what's the first thing that you do in the morning first thing the first thing so a general time that i wake up and this is going to sound like we're of that one percent that is just like uber keen and does marathons that well not that i do marathons but i i tend to wake up at six yep. between six and six thirty and the first thing i do and it's something i've been doing now for a couple of years is um i sit on the edge of my bed and i say a mantra to myself and the mantra is super simple it's today's going to be beautiful today is going to be happy and today you're going to be present i say something around that i know but the first thing i always say is today's going to be beautiful even if it's super gray outside yeah. and it's raining and it's cold or at the moment you know dark you say that out loud i say it to myself in my head actually okay. but i might say it out loud now okay i love <laughs> I think that. that i think that would be pretty inspirational for me actually to to say it out loud but I, I i do that and i sit on the end of my bed and i look out the window and i say today's going to be beautiful i always say that I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't right Hold now. it in. Hold on. And our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. And then I get up and I do something that I've done since 2009. I drink a ton of water. I drink around 600 to 800 mils. And the reason why I started doing that is because when I was a junior doctor uh, in 2009, I realized that I wasn't drinking anything. And it'd get to 1 p.m. and I'd be rushing around the whole morning trying to do ward stuff. I would I just think, oh, my God, I haven't peed and I haven't had any water. Like, I'm more dehydrated than some of the patients here. So yep. I got into this habit of, like, drinking a ton of water in the morning. So I've heard a few people say that, actually, that they wake up and the first thing they do is hydrate, as you said, with a big glass of water. I think I've I kind of done it before, but I don't do it regularly. So maybe something that I will try out um, again soon. Mm. So my, I'd love to ask you about the Power Hour Challenge. So the challenge is I ask the guests each week to give us something for the listeners to get involved with. And it's something that if I had one hour 
each day this week to dedicate to improving my health um, and improving my diet? What should I be doing more of and what should I be doing less of? Uh, so the first one, more of, is actually quite easy for me. It's it's being more experimental and getting more veg in your diet. Like even if it means going to uh, the supermarket and just experimenting all the other colors that you gen- tend to not have in your in your basket. And and I've I've suffered the same thing. I'll go, I'll get the broccoli, I'll get the rocket leaves, I'll get the spinaches because I know how to use those. But I'll negate all the other things like radishes and beets and uh, the the funny vegetables that come out in the season, you know, swede or celeriac and you know, the things that I'm I'm not used to. So I challenge you, the listener, <laughs> to try something new in your diet, maybe three or four new vegetable items that are seasonal or that your local supermarket's got, or even best your grocer, because your grocer will know exactly which farms have come from. And we're lucky in the country to actually have a lot of grocers now, independent grocer stores that you can actually have conversations with about mm. where they get food from and trying to get that into your diet. Because the simple act of getting more uh, variety in your diet is good for your repertoire of micronutrients of which we are deficient in this country and most of uh, Western Europe um, and also improving the functioning of your microbiota. So your microbiota is this uh, huge collection of trillions of different microbes, largely bacteria but also nematodes and viruses and they're responsible, living largely in your large intestine, they're responsible for digesting your food, creating neurotransmitters, short-chain fatty acids, reducing inflammation, regulating uh, blood sugar um you know it, it's it's incredible just how much this population does for us providing nutrients and and producing vitamins you know it's it's mm. incredible so the simple act of adding more variety to your diet largely plants lots yep. of different fibrous items are fantastic okay. so that's something i think we should all do great i'm going to try <laughs> that this this week because i fall into that habit as i'm sure we all do mm. of just grabbing the stuff that i always get so like you just said i know exactly where they are i get the tomatoes get the avocados i get the, the mini corn i get the same things mm. and the certain vegetables which i never never cook and I, I don't know if it's because I don't really like them as much or maybe I don't really know what to do with them so I think yeah this week I'm going to do that I'm going to try and get three new vegetables in the fridge in the house um, and what should we be doing less of I think we should be using doing less self-loathing so I have this I have this issue and this is getting quite personal now, but uh I stroll through Instagram or I'll speak to my friends who are being super successful and doing all this kind of stuff and not necessarily online or, or in in the media attention it could just be my medical friends who are you know working towards consultancy or like publishing papers and that kind of stuff and I always think to myself oh, I wish I could do that I wish I could do more I wish I could achieve what I've achieved in the last uh, year in a month and then I can move on to the next thing and I think it's this constant like nagging at yourself that we tend to do because we're exposed to so many people doing incredible things and maybe not even people within our community. It might be people like Elon Musk. It might be people uh, like the, the guy who started the Khan Academy. Like, isn't that incredible? Like, you know, there's this guy who used to be a banker and then he uh, did this huge internet online business and it's it's uh, uh, creating wealth information for the new generation of kids that are, are computer literate. You know, I wish I could do that. It's just this constant self-loathing. And I think it's something I see a lot of, particularly in the younger generations, who have been sold the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial lifestyle as something to aspire for is actually a lot of entrepreneurs are facing record levels of low mood, record levels of, of self-loathing. And I think it's something that we need to address because you can be super happy uh, and live the simplest life. And actually, 
those are what the happiest people are doing they're living their simplest life yeah that's super interesting i'm so glad that you shared that because i definitely yeah i think so many people look up to as you said people in their industry people in different industries this person's doing this they're launching that they're featured in this they're working on that they're ticking off goals 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 and like you said (laughs) it can make you feel like oh gosh like your own achievements you're like oh actually i'm not doing anything when actually you are and, and regardless of what you're achieving and not achieving as you said Mm. different things bring happiness to different people there's nothing wrong with being content and happy with what you do and not feeling like well that's just complacency or that's just kind of you know mediocrity like that's okay if you're happy and fulfilled surely that's more important absolutely and i think you know as well as like less of self-loathing it's like more love actually it's like instead of like oh i wish i could do that or i wish oh why am i doing that it's like isn't that amazing that person's doing that i love that person that's great good for them yeah good for them and they're, they're spreading their word and and that's great and that's inspired me maybe to do something maybe not today maybe not in a year's time but maybe in some way that's going to that's going to affect me in a positive way and i think having that perspective of the glass being half full is something i wish i would do more of and i and i hope this will inspire more people to think that way. Yeah, I'm sure that it will. That's amazing. Okay, my final question for you, Rupi, which is my closing question to all guests. I believe that time is the most valuable thing that we all have and you can never get it back and you can't get more of it. And I recently heard actually this amazing poet called Inkyu and he, uh, one of the lines in his poem is about time and he says, you can't buy any more of it. And if you could, I'm going to quote it wrong. It would be it would be sold out in every corner store. And I just really thought, you know, this concept of time is so, so valuable. So what is the most valuable thing that time has taught you? This is quite uh, an emotive question, actually. It's a very difficult question because I feel like I'm very early on and I, and I don't have like... Um, an incredible uh, answer to, to give you. So really I'm gonna reflect it back to the experience of my patients and me having had the pleasure and the privilege of speaking to so many people. When I was a junior doctor and I had a lot more time with patients and I could spend a lot more time with them on wards, um, particularly those from an older generation, not to say that the, the younger generation don't have uh, as many incredible things to share with, uh, with everyone, but um, by having the experience of talking to patients, I realized that there is so little time in the world, but despite that, you can have the most fulfilling time by doing the simplest things. It was kind of going back to the self-loathing. By living the simplest life and appreciating that time will always move despite what you do, being comfortable with that concept is probably one of the most powerful things that we can strive for. I'm not there yet. Uh, but I work on it every single day by the mantras that I do, by maintaining a positive perspective and by um, doing a gratitude journal every single day and actually forcing myself, maybe not forcing myself, but encouraging myself to uh, express gratitude and look for things that have a positive impact. The simplest things that have a positive impact on my 24 hours uh, is, is probably one of the most profound things you can do for yourself. And Yes, reflecting back to what my, my patients have told me and the experiences that they've shared with me, um, it's, it's allowed me to come to that conclusion. So mm. I hope that kind of answers yeah, your question. It does. 
Okay, so before we wrap it up, Rupee, if everybody is loving this episode and they want to find out more, they want to see your delicious recipes, they want to see you doing your gratitude, where can they find you online and in real life? Great. So you can find me at thedoctorskitchen.com is my website and on socials at doctors underscore kitchen. And my book, uh, The Doctor's Kitchen, and the new one, Eat to Be Illness, coming out in March 2019, is going to be on Amazon and all good bookstores. Amazing. Eat to Beat Illness. Check it out, guys. It's coming at you. Wow. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've absolutely loved it. My pleasure. Let us know, guys, if you are joining the challenge this week, if you're going to go and find some new veggies to add to your uh, kitchen this week and let us know on Instagram and Twitter and remember if you're enjoying the Power Hour podcast then please do let us know leave us a rate and a review over on iTunes it really helps us to expand the show and to reach more people to encourage them to inspire them to make a positive change in their own lives I'd also love to get your suggestions if there's anyone you'd really like to hear on the show then get in touch let us know thanks so much for listening I really appreciate your time see ya Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.